0: I have a pretty high tolerance for sour milk. I'm not talking about when it goes lumpy, but when it's just starting to turn, it doesn't bother me too much. Uh, And this is because growing up, we often had a milking cow and the taste of the milk changed depending on what the cow ate. Uh, When the cow was eating kind of grass that wasn't too fresh but kind of nice and green, then the milk was sweet and creamy. But if she was eating loose and hay, or there were times our cows would eat scraps by the bootload from a food processing plant down the road, then the milk would taste, well, we just called it interesting, didn't we? It was sour. Uh, But it was still good. It was still good milk. It wasn't off, but it did just taste a bit different. Now that's never hurt me as far as I can tell. In fact, it's meant I can save a few cents on milk. I don't have to throw it out just as it starts to turn. But, it's created some less than happy mornings in our family. Anita and the kids are not so happy with off milk on their wheat bicks. What's your taste like? Now, how refined is your palate? When it comes to the things of God, are you happy enough with sour milk, with things that won't satisfy, won't nourish, that honestly are not as pleasurable as the good stuff? How's your palate? And if we want to change our palate, train ourselves to be more sophisticated and refined, how does it happen? Well, so far as we've started our time in 1 Peter, we've heard lots about what God has done for us in Christ. In Christ, if if you're united to Christ by trusting in him, God's given his chosen people a new birth, a new living hope, eternity with God. God's given us a new home, a heavenly inheritance, a new love, loving Jesus And a new truth. Well, actually, we heard last week, the new truth is the same as the old truth. The truth revealed to the prophets of old, it was the same truth, though it was a bit misty. Well, God has revealed that same truth finally and fully to us in the good news of Jesus. So far in these first 12 verses, we've heard lots about what God's done for us in Christ. And now, as we pick things up in verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13, the first word is, therefore. Uh, that's a linking word. We're moving from what God has done for us in Christ to how God's hope changes us, transforming hope. Uh, now, we've heard lots about what God has done for his people. In verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the facts. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have a new and living hope. But that truth's no good on the shelf. It needs to fill our hearts and our minds and changes, and that's what we find in verse 13. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Uh, a literal translation of minds that are alert would be something like having the the long bit of your cloak tucked in so you're ready to work, uh, ready to run. Uh, if you're going to go to the gym, you don't put on a collared shirt or high heels, you dress ready for exercise. If you're going to go work down the paddock, you don't put on a suit, you put on your old uh, hard-wearing work clothes. I've heard it said, if you want to get in the habit of getting up early uh, in the morning to exercise, then wear your exercise clothes to bed. You even sleep alert and ready to go. That's what God calls us to do with our minds, to always be ready to go. Uh, Setting our hope in God takes effort, so you've got to be prepared. Uh, Why do we need to be prepared? Because our hopes are so quickly drawn to lesser things. Look, it's not wrong to look forward and to set some hope on a holiday or paying off the mortgage or having your footy team win but if that's the sum total of your hope, if that's, uh, if that's the biggest goal in your mind, if that's bigger than when you get to see Jesus face to face to enjoy the grace of his presence, you're missing out. Your hopes are too small. But it's hard, isn't it? Especially when life is hard. When we go through tough times, often we set our hope fully on just getting to the other side, just seeing that light at the end of the tunnel and hoping it's not a train, to be able to talk about the trial as if it was in the past tense. There's lots of little hopes, and especially when life is hard, it's hard to set our, our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. That takes preparation and self-control. Yet as we do this, as our hope is transformed, it will change us to be more like God. So have a look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as you, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Uh, you know the saying, like father, like son, it's a saying because it's true, isn't it? I keep hearing words come out of my mouth and I wonder, hey, did my dad say that? Did did my mum say that? One of the most amazing gifts of the gospel is adoption. When you trust in Jesus, you get adopted into the family of God. God the Father loves you with the same love he has for the Son. And so if this is true, the question is, do you share... In the family, uh, resemblance. Are you holy like your father in heaven is holy? Or do you conform to the family you used to belong to, the family you've been adopted from? Because at its core, this is what holiness is about. Uh, Those words, be holy because I am holy, they come from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. They show up in two different chapters. It's chapter 11 and chapter 19, if you want to check it yourself later. Uh, Both chapters remind the people that God has won their freedom. He's rescued them from Egypt. He's going to bring them into a land, and so God's people aren't to live like the nations around them. They were to be God's people and live God's way. Not like the Egyptians, not like the Canaanites, like God's people. So they had to eat different foods and have godly relationships, treat money and do business differently, do justice God's way. Peter says it's the same for us. It's the same for Christians God has saved us. He's adopted us into his family. We are no longer slaves to the sin or to the devil. We now live as his children because that's who we are. But how do we do this? Or maybe a better question is, how does God do this? How does God change us so that we are his children and live like it? How does God change our taste buds? So we love holiness, we savour holiness, and we want to spit out the things we used to desire. Well, in the next two, a couple of verses, we're reminded of two truths. Two truths God uses to change us. And the first truth is, God is a fair judge. God is a fair judge. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. One of the risks of having a parent coach a sports team is they'll show favoritism to their own child. So if you're the netball coach, everyone's going to be watching, isn't it? They'll be expecting that you'll give your son or daughter the best positions on the court. Look, it's understandable, but it's not fair. I wonder whether sometimes we hope the same things about God. The Bible tells us that in Christ, God adopts believers into his family. We are sons and daughters of God. But that doesn't mean God will turn a blind eye to our behavior. No, God is holy. He's righteous. righteous. He always does what is right and fair. He is impartial, especially when he judges. Now, the question this raises is, what does it mean by judgment? Is Peter talking about the final judgment when Jesus returns? Or is he talking about judgment as in discipline in this life? Now, he could be talking about the final judgment. It's something the Bible teaches. So, for example, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all, that includes believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And in the context of 2 Corinthians, this fact is given to motivate believers to live for Jesus, to take the final judgment seriously. But although facing up to Jesus as judge is true, the Bible says it'll happen, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for a couple of reasons, I reckon here in 1 Peter, he's talking about God's judgment as in God's discipline in this life. That's the judgment of God I think he's talking about, mainly because when we see this come up again in chapter 4, that's how he's using the idea of judgment. So if that's the case, why then should we, uh, should we live in the fear of God? Taking Him seriously, wholeheartedly following Him and being holy. Well because God is a Father who judges, who disciplines the children He loves. Now discipline is much more than punishment. Uh, Discipline is training, isn't it? Most discipline is gentle correction. Like when you're reading the Bible and by the Spirit you are convicted of sin. But sometimes we need a wake-up call. Sometimes we need discipline that feels a lot more like punishment. God does something serious to draw us back to himself. God sometimes uses suffering to do this. Sometimes we suffer because we live on this side of Genesis 3. We We suffer because we live in a world cursed by sin. Sometimes we suffer because God is disciplining us. I wonder what what God may be teaching our denomination through the receivership and financial problems. Maybe this is a discipline. Maybe we're learning to fear him, to desperately rely on him in prayer rather than trusting our strategy and what money can do for us. I don't know, but I wonder... Is this a judgment from God that we might fear him? It's the right question to ask when you're suffering personally or or in your family. It may not be, but it might be. And it's much nicer to not be on that side of God's judgment. And so truth number one that God uses to transform us, fear God's discipline. Uh, The second truth is, Christ's sacrifice is precious. Christ's sacrifice is precious. It continues, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. When I was little, we'd visit some of our cousins. They had a lovely house. And it was great to visit them. It was lots of fun. They had a pool. There was always good food. But when we were little there was a section of the cousin's house that was out of bounds. We weren't allowed into the the formal lounge and dining room because that's where the nice table, the nice carpet, the nice dinner set was used. We had free access to the rest of the house, but you don't let little kids run around or eat in the nice part of the house because it's precious. Jesus is much more precious than your nice dinner set. He is infinitely and eternally valuable. And yet God sent his son, the beloved son, the eternal son, the precious son of God. He took on our humanity in order that he might pour out his precious blood for us and be raised to glory. Human life, human blood is precious. How much more the blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he died to rescue us, to redeem us from our old lives. Lives that are empty and without hope because the end of that life is eternity without Jesus and the final judgment of God. And because life without God cuts against the grain of reality. Jesus gave his precious life to buy us out of slavery to that life. Why would you go back to it? Why would we treat Jesus' blood as if it's cheap? Yet so often we do. So two truths that change us. One, fearing the judgment, the discipline of God. Two, valuing the Lord Jesus. And when we attend to these truths... This is where holiness hits the ground. What does holiness look like? We are changed to love one another. Verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Often in the Bible, faith, hope, and love are put together. So keep an eye out for that whenever you read the Bible, those three words, faith, hope, love. But do you notice something here? In verse 21, we have faith and hope towards God. But then in verse 22, our love, it's not toward God, but to one another. Now, that doesn't mean Peter doesn't want us to love God. In fact, verse 8 says Christians do. But the reason here love is directed towards each other is because the holiness we're saved for isn't simply being enraptured by the presence of God. Holiness is lived out in community. It's lived out as we love, sincerely love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've been part of church, any church long enough, maybe you've noticed that's not so easy to do. Not always anyway. To deeply love all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like you can't choose your biological family, you can't choose the family of God. We saw back in verses 1 and 2, it's God who chooses his people. So how are we going to love one another deeply from the heart? Well, only as God supernaturally gives us new birth. Verse 23, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. How does God give new birth? Through the message of the cross, through his living and eternal word. Everything we know in this life comes to an end. Drought comes and the grass becomes crunchy underfoot. Flowers bloom and blossom in your garden and they're beautiful for a moment but then droop and fall and become mulch. And even back in verse 18 we heard silver and gold will perish. But did you notice in this passage two things will never perish, never lose their value. The blood of Jesus and the word of God. The blood of Jesus and the Word of God. How are we going to love one another deeply from the heart? Well it's going to take something powerful, isn't it? Something powerful like the blood of Jesus and the Word of God. It'll take being loved so much that God would not spare His Son, but that He would die for you. And then He would ensure that the message of the crucified and risen Christ would travel for 2000 years and would make it to the ends of the earth just because of God's great love for you. And if God loves you and he loves your brothers and sisters that much, well, we can love them deeply, too when it's hard to love, and sometimes it is, we need to remember this truth of God's enduring and supernatural love for you. And as we know this truth, we put love into action. How does someone who loves deeply from the heart behave? How should someone be able to look in at our church and say, wow, these people love one another? Well, it's because in our church, there should be not a hint, not a taste of the kind of behavior that destroys people and destroys relationships. So verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. What ties together everything on this list? These things kill relationships. They kill love. Malice means evil intent. If you've got evil intent towards someone, if you're wanting to hurt them, that's not love. So get rid of it. Malice is sometimes deliberately doing something destructive. Sometimes it's just sitting back and watching someone go down a path you know will hurt them. Sometimes it's malicious to not get involved in people's lives, and that's not love. Lies kill relationships. If you can't trust your brothers and sisters in church, you can't trust the words that come out of their mouth, if they can't trust you, well, then you've got no foundation for loving relationships. Hypocrisy is a different kind of deceit as well, isn't it? It's being two-faced, two people. It's putting on your nice church face on Sunday, Someone says, how's your week been? Oh, it's been good. How are you going? Oh, it's fine. Anything to pray for? No, I'm good, mate. But then at home or with your mates, you're someone else. It's insincere. It's not loving anyone. It's pretending when you're here to love, but then walking out the door and not caring anymore. It's insincere. It's not loving anyone. Envy means wanting what someone else has. Instead of celebrating God's kindness to them and being thankful to God for what he is doing in and through and for them, you resent them and you resent God. Uh, Slander is saying something negative about a person. I've been thinking about this a bit this week. It's saying something negative about a person that you haven't already said to their face. I think sometimes we think, oh, it's not slander because I would say it to them, but I haven't. No, that's slander then, isn't it? And it's another type of hypocrisy. Earlier this week, Anita and I were reading Psalm 41, and that psalm talks about being on the receiving end of slander. And the the book we're, we're reading, which is helping us work our way through the psalms, it really brought that home. So we read that psalm sometime this week. Sad to say, later that night, I was talking with Anita, and I said something about someone that was unkind. It was slander. It may or may not have been true, that's not the point. The point is it was unkind, I'd never said it to their face. Only hours before, God had told me how destructive that is. I'm slow to learn. But God's given me a good gift. And Anita gently rebuked me. God in his grace helped me to recognise my sin and I repented. There are so many things we do that destroy love little by little, that are like termites eating away at relationships. The moment you slander someone to someone else, what do they expect that you do about them? It destroys love. And the problem is, so many of us have developed a taste for these things. They're like tasting sour milk and we've just gotten used to it. We think this is what milk's meant to taste like. Advertising gives us a little bit of envy to nibble on. Social media sits us down for a snack of slander. We watch TV shows full of malice and hypocrisy and we develop a taste for it and next thing you know, we're making a meal of ourselves. But that's not what God calls us to, brothers and sisters. God calls us to nourish ourselves on his pure milk. Verse 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I think about a little baby head bobbing around, hunting for milk, crying, streaming when they're hungry. We should be like this. You should be like this for the things of God and for God himself. All the good things God's given us to grow us in holiness, to grow us in deep love for one another, we need to develop a palate for these things, more than a palate, a craving, a need, crying out when we don't have it. How do we do this? Well, we need to replace those things which give us an appetite for destructive things. We need to fill our plate with good food. Instead of speaking slander, pray for that brother or sister and pray for God that you won't say that unkind thing that's been rattling around in your mind. Instead of reading, advertising, all the kind of malice that is often on social media, get into God's word. Do it by yourselves. But that's why we gather as believers, isn't it? Actually, just being at church is part of that discipline of growing. How can you love people you don't know? And God does this as we hear his word together and together we go, yes, this is what God wants for us. As we pray together, as we eat together from the Lord's table and welcome people into God's family through baptism. Through all of these things, we taste and we feast on the goodness of God and we go, yes, the things of God is good and that other stuff that I've developed a taste for is just unsatisfying. How's your palate? What food is acceptable to you that is honestly sour and going rotten as you eat it but you keep going back to it? What do you need to repent of? so that you can taste for yourself the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father God, your word is mighty and active, and by it you are able to change us. Please make us holy as you are holy. Help us to grow to be more conformed to you. May we work out this holiness, your holiness, in deep, loving relationships with each other. Please help us to get rid of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander so that we might stand out in our neighborhoods, stand out in our workplaces, stand out in our families as disciples of Jesus, known by all because of our love for one another. Change our tastes. We are sorry for how we fill ourselves up on sour milk, training our hearts to love things which are not of you and won't grow us up in our salvation. Please change our palates, that we might crave your pure spiritual milk and thus be growing in maturity and love. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.